All right. Zechariah chapter uh, 5 and 6 tonight. We left off with Zechariah's fifth vision as God declared to him that the work of God cannot be done by the abilities or power of the flesh. It must be done by the Spirit of God, not by might, not by power, but by my Holy Spirit. That is a principle that runs for everything in your Christian life. If you are going to be a godly young person, it's not going to be by your flesh. Your flesh will be pulled by the world, by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. You may be born again, but your hormones are fully pagan. They don't want nothing to do with Christianity. So if you're going to be able to be a godly young man and young woman, it's going to be because you are being filled with the Spirit of God, you're walking in the Spirit, and you're drawing from the strength of God to be a light, to be salt to those around you, to be able to stand fast on your own against mockery and ridicule, and the pressures of the world when they think you're some type of imbecile because you believe in a God that came and became man and he died for your sins and his red blood forgives you of everything you did. Yep. That's what he says I'm supposed to trust. And that you would be a Daniel, that you would be an Esther for this dark world only by his spirit. And what can we say about ministry? That is absolutely. If you're ever going to be of any use to God, it is not because you're so talented. It's not because you have it all together. It's going to be because you cast yourself upon the grace of God and you draw from the Spirit of God to be called, to be anointed, to be sent to do what He wants you to do, not what you want to do, what He wants you to do. And then you yield to Him and He does an incredible job through you and you end up giving him all the glory and it just works out exactly as he wants to. By his spirit, no other way. And so we come to the flying scroll, the sixth vision. Again, remember all the visions came in one night. February 24th, 520 B.C. Zechariah 1.7 tells us, um, I see only seven visions as I move through there. I, I join some because I see them related to one another. Um, others see eight, um, others count every time there's a vision, so they see ten. Um, J. Vernon McGee sees the ten, I have no problem with that. Pastor Chuck went with ten that way. I see them a little different, but the main thing is, you know, the content, you know, the context and the application of it. That's the main thing that's important. And so the sixth vision, I see it in three parts. Chapter 5 is all one, where others would break it up into two parts. I put it all together. As we were here this morning in depth, you'll, you'll see how it fits together. So we won't belabor that, but we'll move through it in general commentary. So chapter 5, verse um, 1 and 2 here, the vision of the flying scroll. He says, Then I turned and um, raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, I see the flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Now, again, Zechariah is, is seeing all these things. And one night he's going from one to the other. We don't know exactly there was breaks in between. Um, but here he turns again to see what he's going to see there. And he sees this incredible scroll. 
just flying through the air. Um, it's a pretty good-sized scroll. Uh, the cubit is usually 18 inches from your center finger to the elbow. Usually it's an average of 18, and most commentators um, compute all the cubits of the Bible to 18 inches. There are 21-inch cubits, and there may be a 24, I think, an Egyptian. They depend, I forget exactly right now. But uh, for the Bible interpretation, um, the majority of commentators go with 18 inches. So this comes out to um, 30 by 15. That's a pretty big scroll. So the thing, the scroll they used to write on, whether it be on parchment or papyrus or vellum or whatever it might be, this is a huge thing. It covers the same size as the... Um, the holy place in the tabernacle. As you know, there were two rooms. You have the holy place where the priest went in um, all the time. And, and when he walked in, to the left was a candelabra. To the right was a, the, uh, the table of showbread. In the middle was the altar of, 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 of incense. And then there was a veil. And then behind that was the holy of holies, 15 by 15 a square. Okay? But the holy place is 15 um, by 30. This is the size of the scroll. It's a huge thing. Also, the porch of Solomon in 1 Kings 6, where the altar of judgment was, um, is of the same size. And I don't think it's any coincidence here. Um, uh, There's other members and people in the Bible that had experiences with scrolls. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, uh, a scroll was given to him and he was supposed to eat it and take it. It was sweet in his mouth and bitterness. And his tummy was supposed to prophesy of lamentations and woes, meaning judgments. Well, the same thing we, we see here, that God's word is, is a judgment over people when they disobey the word of God. Now, remember, he's talking to the Jews who are the Old Testament law. The law required perfection. We talked about it this morning. And um, the prophet, um, in, in verse 2, responds to the angel's question of what he saw. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he describes this. This scroll, um, and um, again, these visions are given to the prophet, and the angel is the one that's aiding him all the way through him. So he's being guided like an adult would guide a child through homework or through anything else, uh, instructing them because he has to take this vision and relay it. Remember, he's he's um, he's receiving these visions. But he's working side by side with um, with Haggai. We just finished Haggai, okay? And, and, and they go together. And, and God has encouraged them in this great return and the building of the temple. We've already seen that in other chapters. And then in verse 3 here, he says, Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to the size of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to the sight of it. And so here in verse um, 3, the curse refers to the consequences of obeying or disobeying the law. You know that Israel entered a covenant with God uh, as they came out of Exodus. They're on Mount Sinai. Um, they, they, they were there at the foot of, of the mountain. And um, the covenant here goes back to Deuteronomy 27, 28, the blessings and cursings. And you also find them, whenever you find the, the, the blessings and curses, go to Leviticus 26. So Deuteronomy 27, 28, and Leviticus 26, always there are the conditions. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. Obedience, disobedience. Now, at, 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 in a way, when you look at that, for some people, you, they say, well, that's, that's cruel. Does God get off on that and all that? Listen, are you as a parent and you tell your child, if you do this, I'll take you to this land. If you're not, you're going to be restricted. 
Are you cruel? No, you're not cruel. You're training your child to be obedient, to be productive, that one day they may leave your home and be able to give something to society. Okay? God is dealing with us as people to train our ear to Him, to teach us His ways, so that we might receive the best of life here. That as others are looking to us, when we preach the gospel, there's no contradiction between our message and our life. Now, everybody knows you're not perfect. None of us are perfect. But there should be a vast difference between your life before you came to Christ and now that you're in Christ. Okay? I remember when we first got saved in the early 70s. I mean, you know, all you did in the 60s, you just, you work during the week or go to school. And then come Friday night, you party Saturday night, you party. And even Sunday a little bit and you dread Monday because you got to go to school or work. And that's what we live for. And then, you know, during the week sometimes too. And then all of a sudden we got born again. And here's Friday nights and we're having Bible studies. We're reaching out to the kids in the high school. We're filling our vans up and taking them down the Costa Mesa to the concert used to be there. And we're just, we're just, we know Jesus is coming. We know we've been forgiven. And, and we're just excited. <laughs> and people scratch their head because they knew who we were. <laughs> Around Baldwin Park and that whole area. And and just amazing the, the the work that God does in people's lives. Now, many times people say, Well, that's good for you, you know, that's you need that crutch. No, Jesus is my crutch, he's my bed. Completely. Okay? And they may say, Well, that, that works for you. Well, that works for everybody. But it's not the, the focus of salvation is not so much to live happier, to be a better steward or to have more things, but it's being saved delivers you from ultimate damnation and separation from God. That's what it is. The others are just perks here. The whole goal of forgiving you of sin and myself is that you might not have to give an account one day before God of your sin. And that when he sees you, Jesus says, He's one of mine, Dad. Wow. He sees you as he sees his son. What an incredible, incredible thing. And so, here again, the perjurer, the thief, these relate to the two tablets of the laws. We move on, it'll be ever written on one side or the other. Um, two tables, the vertical one first, our relationship with God, and then the second one, our relationship to man. And um, these two, uh, they are given to us, and they come from the first table, the third, and then from the eighth on the second table. And once again, God holds men responsible and women responsible uh, for their uh, commitment to him. He's talking again to the Jew. A Jew, the nation of, of Israel was a theocracy. They made a covenant with God. He's not holding the people of the land responsible for this to an extent, though God will hold the non-believer for the moral law. Every civilization or any civilized nation knows that it's wrong to kill, steal, to lie. Those are natural things. If you don't have those things, you have anarchy. 
you do not have society, there's no safety at all. And so, um, this is the short-term fulfillment here, as God is going to judge individuals that have come back from Babylon. Verse 4, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of the house and consume it with its timber and stones. In other words, there's nowhere to hide. And people can think they get away with things, but God says, I will get you. God had chastened it for 70 years, and yet some of them were still living in disobedience to God. Some of them had also picked up a lot of the uh, pagan and, and, and evil practices of Babylon. Um, they were an agrarian society, and then when they went into Babylon, they became a very a business-oriented community now. And that's the reason why many of them didn't come back. It was just shy of 50,000, Ezra tells us. Um, and, um, and they went back to the land. Now, remember, they came back at the land, but their heart was not there. So Haggai called them to repent. They repented. Now they're with God. God is with them. He's going to build a temple. Um, and so here the short-term fulfillment is those Jews who had come back, but they were still in the land, but not really right with God. And those who stayed in Babylon, who loved the business, loved the money, and they just figure that's the way they're going to go. The long-term fulfillment will be looking to the great tribulation, when God will judge Babylon, commercial, and religious Babylons we saw this morning. And then he will set up the kingdom. Um, once again, written in the front of the back, reminds us of uh, the tablets that God gave to Moses in Exodus 32 um, 15, uh, written on both sides. And um, this is individual sin that he's dealing with. And um, um, Romans chapter 3 tells us that all men are guilty before God. The whole world's guilty before God. So the law can never justify us before God. The law can only accuse us um, because you have to be uh, a, a complete perfect doer of the, of the law. Nobody can do that. We all fall short. And so... In verse 5 down to 11, um, the woman in a basket now continues the sixth vision. So um, uh, some more characters are added here. Verse 5 says, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also says, This is the resemblance Throughout the earth. Now, the same interpretive angel here gives understanding to Zechariah. As he lifts his eyes again, he sees the vision. He's awake. This basket going forth, um, it's known for its character by all. We're going to see that it's evil. uh, As in a few verses that we'll get to right now. Um, It's evident in verse, uh, the next verse. And the word baskets, ephod, it's a dry measure of the Jewish basket, and it, it, it typifies commerce. And once again, they're coming from Babylon, where they have received a lot of the evil practices. Nehemiah, in fact, rebukes them, and Nehemiah is probably about 75 years later. And they were putting their brethren under bondage, lending money at high interest. Now, you know what the law said. You should not charge any interest to your brother. That was the command for Israel. Okay? They were never to charge interest of one another. 
but they could do it to a, the foreigner, not to themselves. And so they learned the money uh, business, and, and, and there Nehemiah rebukes him, and that's even much later than this. And so here again, he lifts his eyes, and um, this ephod um, is that dry measure, and the resemblance is known uh, of what it stands for. It's not good. It's, it's evil. And in verse 7 and 8, the angel gave the prophet the interpretation. Here is the lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the ba- basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. In other words here, there was this kind of flying saucer type disc, flat, and a woman is sitting inside the basket here. And the scriptures use a woman, when it uses a woman in any other way outside of the God-given role of being a wife and a mother and a woman of virtue, it's always in an evil sense. It's very indicative through the scriptures. Um, you have the uh, parable of the woman um, that hid leaven in the three measures of meal in Matthew uh, 13, um, 33. She introduced false doctrine into the church. You have Jezebel who called herself a prophetess, self-appointed. And she was teaching the servants of God about sexual immorality and idols in Revelation 2.20. Now, sex and idols go together, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? Every time you find idolatry, you find sexual sin. And all you have to do is look and think how the world is. When a young woman idolizes a young man, what does she do? She sacrificed herself to him. Idols and sex go together. All of the ancient religions were sexual rites of the Old Testament. Baal, Molech, Asherah. All of them, the goddess Diana. All right? We have the same thing today. It's called the pornography industry. No different, under a different name, all right? When um, we were in Pompeii, in one of our trips, as we extended it from Israel, go through Pompeii, and much of Pompeii is still underneath, has never been uncovered. And you go through there and you see actual people just reaching for a money bag. They're just solidified in, you know, in just the ash, just right on the spot. And many of the houses... Um, were covered with pornography. It was nothing new. This is nothing new. It's happened throughout the ages. And yet, they were always identified with their religions because it made the religion very popular. And so people would go. And, and, And the Bible speaks about the charges against Israel as the wife who put away, uh, uh, her husband by adultery and so God puts her away okay and it speaks about being a harlot and 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 being unfaithful to God and so um, here again um, 
this woman is is evil, wicked. Um, the angel identifies a woman in the basket as wicked is very straightforward. Um, the basket represents the measure of wickedness that had come into the land as they had returned to Israel. They brought it from Babylon. The Jews learned again all these things, these practices. And the angel, notice, hurled the woman into the basket. Okay, realizing her character, her evilness of of, of uh, immorality and sin, God was purging his people now as they come back. He's preparing to use them. He's already chastened them. Now he wants to bless them. So he's removing all these old practices. You know, when you came to the Lord, you were kind of funky. Just like I. We were into different things. And all of a sudden you're born again. And you know that you know that you can't do what you did when you used to be without Christ. The minute I was born again, one weekend I was out partying. The next weekend, I was in a Bible study. I didn't have a desire to go talk to my friends. Hey, what you guys do last night? I know what they did last night. And I don't want to hear it. And I don't want to talk about it. So there's a radical change that happens. The minute you're born again, you know that you cannot do the things you used to do that are immoral, that are unethical. Because Christ has made you one with him. And so here again, the purging. Um, Zechariah 2.12 is the only place that the land of Israel is called the Holy Land. And what he's doing here is he's purging the land. Preparing them for this work. In verse 9. He says, then I raised my eyes and I looked and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Now, these two women are evil, and they're one with the one in the basket. They come as birds. Birds are always evil, as wings of a stork. So whenever you find birds in the scripture, they always represent evil. Unless the context would dictate something good, but the majority, the first rule of mention is whenever it's evil, it's followed evil all the way through. You have the um, parable of the sower in Matthew 13, uh, verse 4, where the seed is cast on the wayside, and the birds come and they pick it up. They snatch it from the heart of man, lest they believe. You have... The aspect of the, um, um, the parable of the mustard seed, which is not a tree. It's a bush. And sometimes it grows abnormally large. And so the birds confuse that bush for a tree. And he says, and the birds lodge in it. And the kingdom parables of Matthew 13 show us what's going to happen in the age of the church in the absence of the king. Many birds, evil people, when the church grows abnormally large, it becomes corrupt and big birds lodge within. Okay? Now, some people take the kingdom parables and they totally destroy them and distort them. They interpret it, they interpret them contrary to 
the rules of interpretation. And they say, well, you know, the leaven in the meal means that the church is going to grow and just affect the whole world. We're going to set up the kingdom. Really? Leaven is sin. And they say that when the mustard seed grows, it grows large, that's good. You have big, healthy Christians in their big birth. No. And they're deceiving the people of God. In fact, Second Peter chapter 2 says that they will, they will have these false teachers will have great followings from within the church. We are seeing much of this today in the past 10 years. And there's such heresy being taught from the pulpits of America that it's amazing. And there's such superficiality about commitment to God and to holiness. And it's amazing that people would stand behind pulpits and would, would not even want to mention sin or repentance, but they teach and preach a social gospel, which is no gospel at all. And there's all kinds of warnings in the scripture about warning us and showing us people who corrupt the word and the judgment that falls upon them. Um, here again, um, she's wicked. These um, two come alongside. They lift the basket up between the earth and heaven. And in verse uh, 10 and 11, the prophet is told the destination of the woman in the basket. He says, so I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, where it is ready, the basket will be set there in its base. Now, Shinar is Babylon. Shinar is the original kingdom of Nimrod in Genesis 10, 9-10. Nimrod, remember, was a mighty hunter against the Lord. He would take people away from God. Okay? He was not a good guy. In fact, he supposedly married Samaramis. And then he got killed. And tradition tells us that then Samaramis says that she got impregnated by a sun ray divinely. And she had a son called Tammuz, a T, okay? And that one day he was out and wild boars killed him and 40 days later he rose from the dead. Really? Tammuz, does that look like a cross, a T? 40 days, does that ring a bell? 40 days Lent in the Catholic Church? And you see the counterfeit. In fact, Semiramis is called the Queen of Heaven and Jeremiah as they are worshiping her. What does the Catholic Church call Mary? The Queen of Heaven. Okay? You have the picture of Mary, the Virgin Mary, the moon and the stars. Well, the moon and the stars refer to Israel, not Mary, the scriptures tell us. 
And so you have all this twisting and corruption that God gave very specific meaning to. And so here, again, this, the origin is bad. Uh, the Tower of Babel, um, God said to disperse over the land. They said, no, we'll gather together. They built a tower to heaven to have access to heaven. That's a religious tower in rebellion against God. So God confused the languages. The Tower of Babel is not something God applauded. It was in rebellion to God. Okay? The kingdom of Nimrod was Shinar, Babylon. Isaiah gives us the short-term judgment of Babylon that took place even as Zechariah has indicated and others. But he also gives us the long-term of the last days that will come during the Great Tribulation, Isaiah 13. In Revelation 17 and 18, um, summarizes the judgment of God over commercial and religious Babylon because they both go together. Okay, uh, if you remember back in the Dark Ages, the Dark Ages were called the Dark Ages because the Catholic Church oppressed everybody and killed anybody who didn't agree with them. They confiscated all the properties. They took everything. Okay, they weren't called dark because there was light. And um, and it was during that time when when they just ruled supreme. And yet, as the Lord has given the scriptures to us, uh, we see that there are always people who will take the scriptures out of context and add to it and interpret it subjectively. God would have you to interpret according to the context. And even as here, um, Babylon is evil. It, uh, it has no good place. So here, where the evil came from, God is confining, cleansing the land from his people, sending it back, and it would continue. It's interesting, that whole region of Babylon, even to the present day, it's not very godly, not very friendly. In fact, just a couple of years ago, a year and a half, remember, they, they decapitated a whole bunch of Christians, right? And uh, it seems that um, there's such hatred in that area. And uh, certainly it's against the Jew. And against the Christian. And so we see God's ultimate judgment. Short term here. Long term. During the great tribulation. Against the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now. As he comes to chapter 6. We have. The four chariots. The seventh vision. Verse 1 through 3. The vision observed, observed by the prophet here. He says, then I turned and raised my eyes. Once again, the vision is awake. And he looked and behold, four chariots were coming from between the two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. So here he turns again. He sees this next vision. Um, the four chariots are angels of God, angels of judgment. We'll get the interpretation when we get to verse five. In the first vision, you remember chapter 1, verse 7 through 17, um, they were judgment against Israel, okay? So the context is very important when you deal with what God is revealing. 
Uh, these should not be confused with the four empires of the Gentiles, uh, the head of gold, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the arms and shoulders of, of uh, silver, the uh, belly of brass, Greece, and the legs of Rome, iron. Okay, they should not be confused with these. These are uh, totally different. Um, and they should not be confused with the four horses of the apocalypse that we find in the book of Revelation. They are, are in a different order, and um, their interpretation for this particular ones is given to us in verse 4 and 5. And so this is something that you have to discipline yourself to, that you move through the text and you let the text explain itself. Whenever you cross-reference something, you have to make sure it's the same context. Not just because they're horses can you go to the book of Revelation and put the four horsemen of the apocalypse here to mean the same. They're a different order. Now the, 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 the colors, as we'll see, are, are consistent in what they mean, but, um, but the order is different. Um, and the time period is different. Now, the two mountains uh, have the article. So it possibly many believe that it is Mount Moriah and, um, uh, and the Mount of Olives, um, Mount Zion there, where God will judge the nations in the Valley of Jehoshaphat when he returns, as Joel chapter 3 verse 2 says. Remember, Zechariah is giving us a short term right where he's at coming out of the captivity and he also is looking the long term when God will deal with the world in the great tribulation to set up the kingdom. He has much material for the millennial kingdom as we've mentioned. Uh, bronze is always symbolic of judgment. Again, the consistency of the rule of first mention. Um, gold is deity, silver is redemption, brass is judgment. The wood in the tabernacle spoke of humanity. God would become human to redeem mankind, judge their sins on himself. The tabernacle spoke of redemption all the way through. So here, brass is symbolic of, um, of judgment. There was a brass altar, right? Judgment. And so in verse 2 and 3, um, the four chariot and the horses are described. It says in the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, and the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dapple horses, strong steeds. The red represents war, the black death, the white peace or victory, depending on the context, and the dapple or gristle or plague as, as represents plagues or pestilence. And you always have that order. When you have war, then you have death, then you have Pestilence. The order is a little different here. You have the horse of the apocalypse. You find that order. The first horse of the apocalypse is white. Symbolic of false peace because the man on that has a bow but no arrow. So he conquers through diplomacy, through lies, the Antichrist. Okay? So it's important the context you mark that. Now, these should not be confused again with those of Revelation because the order is very, very different. Now, verse 4 and 5, the prophet asked the angel for the interpretation. He says, And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to him, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from this, their station before the Lord of all the earth. And so once again, Zechariah needs help. What are these, my Lord? 
These are angelic watchers sent by God to guard and carry out his orders throughout the earth. Uh, in this room tonight, there are countless of angels, good angels and bad angels. And there's warfare going on. Daniel spoke of how Michael was hindered from coming to him. Or um, Gabriel, I'm sorry, Gabriel was hindered um, as, as Satan and the prince uh, of Persia the, uh, delayed him. And there's warfare that goes on. You've got the uh, one-third of the angelic beings that followed Satan, and they are manifested as spirit beings of evil. Some of them need a body to possess. They're called demons. Why? We don't know. But demons are merely fallen angels, but they need to possess a body. We don't know why. And then on the other side, you've got two-thirds of the angels that are still faithful to God, and they go around doing his bidding. Now, greater is he that's in you, Jesus Christ, than he that's in the world. Okay? And so once you're a Christian, God is for you. You have the Spirit of God. You have the mind of Christ. You have God on your side. And you have the Word of God to make you more like Christ every day. And so we don't have to fear the enemy, but we certainly don't want to become arrogant and, and taunt the enemy or to get cocky. No. Um, Michael said in Jude verse 6, The Lord rebuke you. Make sure you keep the Lord between you and Satan. You don't want to deal with him. Trust me, okay? He was number two in heaven. All right? He's not some little wimpy angel. Now again, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about that. Sometimes people get all freaked out. They come out of the world. Maybe they're into, you know, the paranormal and activity or they get into, you know, these spirit beings, tarot cards or whatever it is. And, and they start thinking, well, can somebody put a hex on me? Listen, if you're a Christian, greater is he than you that see this in the world. Okay. Don't go messing with that stuff because if you mess with that stuff, you can be harassed, you can be oppressed, you can even become depressed, but you cannot be possessed if you're a child of God. Are we clear on that? There's not one instance in any of the scriptures, old or new, where a demon-possessed person was a believer. Not one. So... People twist the scriptures and they teach things that are contrary to scripture. And so they kind of just spin and they say, well, you know, we need to have deliverant ministries, you know, because you might have the spirit of lust, the spirit of smoking, the spirit. Of, so we got to cast that demon out. Where do you get this nonsense? I don't need a demon to... Help me drink or smoke or... I make those choices. And so you have a lot of times in ministries, and these doctrines come and go, but if you look around and go on your computer and punch in deliverance ministries, boy, you're going you're gonna to be there for about a week. And how interesting that as the people of God, all you do is gather together to give attention to Satan. What a waste of time. Open your Bible. Find out who you are. You're a son and a daughter of God. 
Put on the armor. Do good warfare and glorify Jesus Christ. Don't be a little girl. Okay? God is for you. Who can be against you? So again, we don't want to be arrogant either. But we want to give an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that lies in us with meekness and fear. Because some people that do this stuff, they've been deceived, they don't know, so they need answers. So you give them answers. Now, once you give them the scriptures and you show them that that's wrong, and they still don't want to, then it's up to them. I'm not going to get mad. I'll just pray for you. But, you know, that's up to you. But I at least have to be able to give an answer why I... I believe it's wrong. I'm going to show you in the scriptures, in context. Very, very important. And so, here again, they go out from the station before the Lord. God sends them out on recon missions. Verse uh, 6 and 7, the one with the black horse is going to the north country. The white are going after them and the drapple are going towards the south country. Verse uh, 6 there. Um, the north country, we know long-term wise that um, Russia is going to attack Israel, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, and then when that happens, the rapture happens at the same time. And God will destroy that Russian army, which is joined with an Islamic confederacy. Read Ezekiel 38 and 39. The nations are very, very clear. Okay? And that's where God will intervene, destroy the, the army, and the Antichrist will appear and the church will be removed from this earth. And the seven-year tribulation or the day of the Lord begins. And so the white horses go after them. The drapple are going towards the south, perhaps towards the uh, area of Egypt. And in 7 and 8, the chariots are ordered by God to go throughout the earth. He says, Then the strong seas went out eager to go, and they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and through, uh, fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. So in other words, the angels are ministry spirits to the earth salvation. They're God's, they do God's bidding. Um, they're, they're, now, God doesn't need any of that. He just has them. God doesn't need protection. God doesn't need helpers, okay? Uh, he, he can take care of all. I mean, my, God didn't have to call up a gardener to take care of the earth. He takes care of it. Once we move in, then we have to call a gardener because we mess up God's way. Otherwise, God takes care of itself, okay? So we mess it up. In verse 8, he says, And he called to me, and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north. So in other words, God is in control. Now, men have a free will. He's given rest to his spirit, meaning as he pours his wrath upon them. The wrath of God is poured out from day to day, Romans chapter 1 says, against ungodly people and nations. See, some people don't like to hear that. But Romans 1 is very, very clear. The wrath of God is being poured out right now. We don't always know when it's God. But God says it is pouring out. There's some people that cross the line before they die. And God deals with them very severely. Okay? People that are ungodly, they're blasphemous. 
And I hear some of these Hollywood guys and the mockery that they do about Christians or Jesus. And man, I fear for them. You know, and um, God doesn't take kindly to that. And so that's what he's dealing here. Now, in verse 9 to 15, the visions are over. You have the seven, or if you want to count eight, or if you want to count ten, it's up to you. The visions are over. Um, Verse 9 through 15, you have the crowning of Joshua. This is not a vision, okay? And it's very clear that it's not declared to be a vision, though it's still a revelation from God to the prophet. He says in verse 8, 9, 9 to 10, um, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and have, that have come from Babylon, and go to the same, the same day, and enter the house of Josiah, the son of uh, Shephaniah, take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so apparently a contingent, a federation of a group of men from Babylon, that now they're free, they're under Medo-Persia, have come, and... Um, They've brought the silver and gold. And uh, the men, uh, Haldai means God's word. Tobijah, God's goodness. And Hadiah means God knows. Great names. And they enter the house of Josiah. Great name also of King Josiah. And they order, God orders here, not them. God orders a crown to be made for Joshua and to be crowned. Now, remember, Joshua, we've seen in chapter 3, is a representative of the nation of Israel, the high priest, right? And he prefigures the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, okay? So this is a coronation of Joshua. By the way, his name in the Greek is Jesus, Yahweh of salvation. And so this is prophetically looking towards the coronation of Jesus as Messiah during the millennial kingdom. Okay, they're building the temple right now, short term, and he's taught, we've talked about it, and he's pointed us, there's a new, the one that's going to be built, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, during the millennial kingdom, okay? Now, silver again represents redemption, gold, deity. Verse 12 through 13, the interpretation is given. Then speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, he shall sit and rule on his throne, so he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is speaking prophetically of the branch Jesus Christ, which we saw already in chapter 3, verse 8. Representing here the branch, the humility, the um, humbleness of the Lord. He will build that temple, bear the glory, sit and rule on his throne, be high priest and rule there in the temple. Jesus is both priest and king and 
he is the ultimate prophet. In fact, when he came into Jerusalem, he came in as, as prophet, king, and priest in the day of the triumphal entry. Now, when he came the first time, he came as um, prophet, the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy. Right now, he's officiating his high priestly office, interceding for us. And when he returns in the second coming and we come back with him, he will come back as king of kings and lord of lords. Prophet, priest, and king. No person has ever occupied those three at the same time. There have been prophets who have been priests. They have priests who have been prophets, so on and so forth. But no one man has ever occupied all three of them. Those are the fulfillment of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so here we have an incredible prophecy. Um, notice that he speaks here of, um, of the temple. God just mentions one temple. And yet, there was Solomon's temple. Now we are seeing Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel's temple was beautified and enlarged by Herod. There will be an Antichrist temple. And then there will be the Millennial temple. But God sees them all as his house. He does not see the temple of the Antichrist as his house. But the one that Solomon and the glory departed, Ichabod. Then now the glory of God is in Zerubbabel's temple. Herod expands it, glorifies it, and he will ultimately build the last temple in the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. It is God's house completely. And so, verse 14, the instructions for the crown. He says, now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helen, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Sephaniah. And so here again, um, it's a memorial to remember God's promise for the future. God cannot lie. What he has said, he will fulfill. You know, sometimes people say, well, maybe the Lord isn't coming. Really? What would give you that idea? If he fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming, what would make you believe that he's not going to fulfill the rest? <laughs> and see the subtlety of the world, the subtlety of our flesh. And if the Lord should tarry, I, I, I encourage you and warn you, stay close to the Lord. Stay in his word daily. Make sure you are growing, developing and maturing, and make sure that you are involved in the church serving. Because let me tell you, if you're not, your flesh, the world, and the devil will play ping pong with you. All right? He wants you to be growing in him, to stay close to him, to tune your ear to him, to know the scriptures so that no one can deceive you, so that you don't live for yourself and live for your flesh, but that you give your life to him daily. And I'll tell you, after you walk with God 30, 40, 50 years, you'll look back and you'll never, ever regret it. Ever. But yet, Satan will be there to put trance for you. People 
will be there used by Satan to put traps for you. So watch where you go. Don't go alone. Ladies and gentlemen, be real wise on how you live. I'm not talking about being weird. I'm talking about being wise. It's real simple, okay? You come out from drugs, don't go around the candy man. Don't go around the old neighborhood. You broke up with your girlfriend when you became a Christian. She wants nothing to do with you. Now you're like King Ahasuerus. You're missing her like Vashti. And you think you'll... Well, you can't drop a dime. It's more expensive now. But you call her. And all of a sudden, all emotions and feelings and one thing leads to another. And here you go like an ox to the slaughter. Do, 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 do. Dead. So you stay in check with the word of God. Joseph ran out naked. If you have to run out naked, run. It's better than saying, well, you know, I tried. No, no, no. You haven't tried unless you've run. Okay? If you have to. And so, God wants to give you the best. Especially you young people. I mean, God wants to use you. Do you know how empty and how lost this generation is? Your peers? My mine was lost. I come out of the 60s. I was 23 in 1973. So in 66, I was 16. I graduated in 68. I was 18. I was right in the midst of all of that. All my friends, I have friends that fried their brain with drugs. I have friends that OD'd. I have a, um, my friend Joey who was on heroin for many years and everything. And after 40 years of praying for him and ministering to him, going back and ministering to his mom and dad, and she dies and I bury her. And he came to the Lord 40 years later. Do not give up on your friends, on your family, on those that God puts before you. I mean, someone was praying for you. Someone loved God enough and so much that they thought that you needed to be saved and forgiven. And so, um, good stuff. You know what I mean? Stuff that we need to hear because the world's going to tell you how great you are and how much you deserve. This is how great you are. Good for nothing. Your righteousness is as a filthy menstrual garment. Isaiah 64, 6. You're dead and trespassed in sins if you're not born again. Wow. But the world's there too coddle you and to promote you and to just say you're the greatest thing since ice cream. No, no, no. God wants to make you more like Jesus Christ. That way first, you're good to yourself and benefit and you're good and benefit to others. Because all you young people, you're going to get married one day. So what you need to do is not come to church with a checklist on the right person, you need to be studying and working hard to be the right person. Turn it around. So that when God brings that young man to you, or that young woman to you, that you know that God brought them to you 
and that you love them all the days of your life and you honor the Lord and that you receive the blessings of God that he wants to give you. And then as you come together and you have children and, you know, 23 chromosomes of each and you look at them and they look so much like her, so much like you. And then you look across the room and they're 15, 18 and they're standing just like you and they talk just like you. And you go, oh, man. And it's great. Our kids. Me and my wife brought in two little rotten sinners into this world. Now they're in their 40s. Overnight. Like that, young people, do not throw your life away. Give it to Jesus. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for every person here, Lord. Pray that you deal with their hearts and mind, and Lord, that we continue to just worship you and to just lift our hearts to you. We thank you for using this building, Lord, and bringing people to hear your word. We thank you for the internet. We thank you for just the radio station we have. And Lord, just to be able to minister your word freely. And the Lord, we can see you work. And even though we don't see the results in the radio and that, Lord, it makes no difference. You know what's going on and you will use your word. You honor it above your name. So, Lord, we thank you. We love you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here tonight to be saved. To repent of your sins. Or maybe you're over the internet. Right where you sit. If you believe Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You can ask him right now to save you. This is your prayer of repentance. Father I come to you in Jesus name. I ask you to forgive me Lord for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.